Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Oh, <laughs> there we go. I don't know if you could hear that online. Happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter if you're online. Happy Easter if you're here in church. And uh, sorry about that little echo uh, that we've had, although it's amusing for a moment. <laughs> Hopefully it won't come back. And um, just to say also, if you're back in church for the first time, Welcome back for in a year or however long it is. I hope you've enjoyed your little game of guess who, trying to work out who's behind the mask. And uh, I know it's strange, but it's great to be back, isn't it? And I, I'll never forget the first time I came back, back in January, and it, it really warmed my heart. So it's a delight to have you all with us here, especially if you're a visitor or an occasional attendee. And I have to say it's also a delight Uh, this term to be doing our sermon series, Conversations with Jesus. And if you don't know me, by the way, I'm Tom. I'm the vicar here. And in Conversations with Jesus, all term, we've been looking at a different person's encounter with Jesus each week. And uh, often people we've never looked at before, or not very often anyway, and often with some really interesting details in the dialogue, in the passage, uh, which has spoken powerfully into our lives, and I've really enjoyed it, and it seems that you have too. And I believe today is no exception in this sermon series. As we look at this first Easter Sunday, through the lens of what has to be said is an unlikely central figure, Mary Magdalene, who to me at least seems modern because she's got a surname, albeit though uh, because there are so many Marys it seems in the Bible, in the New Testament. And she seems exotic as well, doesn't she, to me at least? Probably because more than any other New Testament figure, she features in so many legends, uh, colourful legends, as well as actual biblical accounts. And who frankly, and this is how, where I'm going with this sermon today, given her history and her situation in our moment of history, seems thoroughly relevant to our situation today, today, and I hope that will become clear. For can we identify with her, Mary Magdalene, here at St. Paul's? Well, I had a quick think about whether many of us uh, could, and here's a quick overview. She's female. She had some issues in the past, some pretty serious ones, but Jesus rescued her and turned her life around. She's wealthy, relatively speaking, and generous. She's passionate, she's devoted, and at this point in the history, she's struggling with sadness and fear. Sound relevant? Frankly, she sounds like about half our church, and if not you, well, perhaps to a partner, a neighbor, a family member, or friend. She's just like us. We're messed up. Jesus has turned our life around. And though we struggle with sadness and fear, there is hope. And we're going to find out in this sermon why. So let's invite God to use Mary's story to speak to us today, to encourage, to challenge, to inspire us. And let's pray that God would do that now. Father God, would you take This story of Mary, of how you used her when you raised your son from the dead. 
And would you use it to speak hope, to speak truth, to speak encouragement into our lives and those that we love, those that we mix with, those that you've placed us among. For your glory we pray. Amen. Okay, so on with the story. And let's start with the historical truth of what we know about the first person, after all, God chose to meet the risen Jesus. And her surname, if we can call it that, is actually something that cathedrals and towns are named after, even colleges in both Oxford and Cambridge. And there's only one other person who has that to claim, and that's Jesus himself. Now, where does the name come from? Well, almost certainly it comes from Magdala, a fishing village on the western shore of Lake Galilee. And Mary was by far the most common Jewish name for females during the first century. The gospel accounts make that clear. Whenever they give a list of women around Jesus, they're all Marys, or most of them are anyway. And you can be sure in first century Palestine, there are plenty of Hail Marys going on in any busy street bit like 1950s Dublin, I think. And what does the Bible tell us about her? Well, the answer to that starts with Luke 7 and Luke 8. And actually, first of all, with who she wasn't. For I preached on Jesus being anointed by the uh, sinful woman back in, in Luke 7, back in February. And as I discovered then, there is absolutely no basis for concluding that that woman was Mary. If she was... Luke would have told her, of course he would have done. And Mary, by contrast, just to make the point, is introduced just a few verses later in Luke 8, verse 2. And we read this. Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So we know she'd been demon-possessed multiple times in a big way, it seems, which must have made her something effectively of an outcast. We cannot overstate the transformation that Jesus' healing of her must have brought she would have been hugely grateful. Of course she would. But she wasn't a prostitute, and it wasn't her that had poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. That much is clear. And yet probably she was still wealthy, for she was rich enough to help support Jesus and the disciples, as the passage said. And this place her as a central, a vital figure in the key other group accompanying Jesus and his ministry. Women who, I must admit, I had never noticed before, had all been healed in one form or another. What a connection that was. And that fact alone should tell us something. That it doesn't matter what struggles we've had, physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual, and who of us haven't, Jesus can heal us. Jesus can transform us, and Jesus can use us. And that includes you 
and me. And in that group, on each occasion, significantly, it's Mary who's mentioned first. But then, of course, there's the mythological Mary. And that started after a series of Easter sermons delivered in 591, when Pope uh, Pope Gregory I conflated Mary with the unnamed sinful woman of Luke 7. And this resulted in a widespread belief that she was a repentant prostitute, or at least a promiscuous woman, with elaborate medieval legends telling exaggerated tales of Mary Magdalene's wealth and beauty, as well as her alleged journey to southern France. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? Certainly better than the satanic mills of northern Britain, which the Jesus of legend had to visit. But in the end, truth prevailed. And after centuries of criticism from Protestants, the identification of Mary Magdalene with that sinful woman, and indeed Mary of Bethany, was withdrawn by the Pope at the time in 1969. And though it persisted in popular culture by Dan Brown and a few others, as Christians, we should kick it firmly into touch. Okay, so back to the real Mary then. And though we can assume that she'd been there all along with Jesus and his disciples, it's in the events of Holy Week that she really stands out. For all four canonical Gospels agree that Mary Magdalene, as well as several other women, watched Jesus' crucifixion, even after the male disciples had fled. Mark and Matthew then list her as witnesses of his burial. And then that takes us onto the resurrection and what we heard read to us this morning. Her devotion to Jesus is such that she either ahead of or with a small group of other women went to anoint his body with spices. But she, like everyone else, had no inkling whatsoever of what had happened in the tomb that morning. That much is clear and no inkling to of the joy that was to come. And as we heard and saw, it started in darkness, as if anticipating it would be a dramatic day. She leaves her house early, and when she gets to the tomb, though, she has a huge and devastating shock. The stone has been removed from the entrance. And her reaction was immediate, running to the two disciples we probably would have told to, wouldn't we? Peter and John. And if the dramatized reading is anything to go by, they were asleep, but grateful, very grateful for being woken. For their reaction is equally fast. They, they run down to the tomb. John wins the race, but it's Peter who goes in first. And both see the burial And the eyewitness details add further authenticity to the account as we read that the strips of linen were just lying there with the burial cloth folded up by itself. The message is clear. That wouldn't have happened if it was a grave robbery. And John, it seems, believed, though I'm sure understandably still bewildered, Yeah, still no Jesus. And it's here that Mary again steps in. The others leave, Peter, John, and the other women, but Mary stays. And she's crying, but not tears of joy at this point, but tears of distress at the disappearance of Jesus' body. In fact, the word for crying here actually means wailing. This is a distraught 
and desperate expression of grief. Despite her crying, though, she decides to look into the tomb herself now. And what she finds is new. And what an amazing discovery it is. Two angels seated where Jesus' body had been. The first hint that all is well. Their role is minimal, though, as they ask her why she's crying, which she then answers, only to have her attention quickly drawn by someone approaching from behind. And he asks the same question. Who are you looking for? But not realizing who she's talking to, she assumes he's the guarder and asks, you think, you're sensing more in hope than expectation. She asks whether he has taken the body and offers to collect it. Like with the other resurrection appearances, Jesus is not immediately recognizable, either because he looks slightly different or perhaps because he intentionally prevented recognition. But it doesn't last for long, does it? For instead of responding to her offer to collect the body, Jesus answers with one word. A word that tells her everything. Her name, Mary uttered, we assume, in his normal manner and voice. And she suddenly understands, responding in a moment as emotional as any the Bible records. Rabboni, she cries. A more intimate and personal version of of the word rabbi, which, though it means teacher, actually appears little in ancient Judaism, so it seems, other than as a calling on God in prayer. Whatever she understands by it, though, her joy and her devotion is clear. And what a wonderful moment it is. Yet now is not the time for embracing, a bit like 2021, really. Jesus' reason, though, for restraint is not COVID. Rather, when he says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, he most likely means that his ascension was still some time off, as of course it was. Mary would have opportunity to see Jesus again, so she need not cling to him now. And she had a job to do urgently. Go instead to my brothers, he told her, and tell them, I'm ascending to the Father and to your Father, to my God and your God, which she did. Verse 18 says, Mary went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said. Which is where our passage leaves us. The news is out. Jesus is alive. And it's Mary who's seen him. And it's Mary who's been called, as the church would later describe her, to be the apostle to the apostles, telling the good news to those who would tell the world. And let's just pause for a moment and imagine what that must have been like. Her devotion and grief as she sets off in darkness for the tomb. Her anguish and distress as she discovers the body gone. Her bewilderment and turmoil as the angels speak and her astonishment and joy as Jesus lifts the scales from her eyes. And then think back to the first time that you realize that Jesus is alive. That he's not just a historical figure who died and was buried, but is a living person today. 
Think back to the first time that he uttered your name, calling you to himself. And think back to how at that moment you knew that nothing else really mattered. This man truly is the saviour of this world. And that his resurrection truly was the greatest moment of human history. And your receiving of him into your life, the greatest moment of your life. And that he loves you more than anyone else you've ever known, earning your forgiveness through his death on the cross. For when we remember that, or when we realize that, if we haven't already, Mary's, suddenly, Mary's story suddenly becomes our own. No doubt, Rabboni for her becomes a different word for us. Lord, Master, Saviour, Greatest Friend. Well, that's two words, but you get the picture. And the response that's sought from us is actually the same as from Mary. Not to cry tears of sadness, at least. For joy and hope and a future to live for has arrived. And not to fear his absence, for Jesus' presence is now permanent with us through his Holy Spirit, living in us minute by minute, day by day. And not to linger in confusion or paralysis, but instead to go with a message that truly is the greatest news that the world has ever heard. Our task, and each generation's task, to share the good news of Jesus afresh whenever we get the chance. So let's bring all that home then to our specific context at this time in this place, to a community that so desperately needs hope, so desperately needs healing, and so desperately needs love. Now, yes, like the disciples, we've still all got much that we could be fearful and saddened about. Of course we have. In their case, arrest and persecution. In our case, infection, isolation, uncertainty, or possible grief, or ongoing loss of confidence, loss of community, distant relationships, struggles for happiness or peace. But what is now also undeniable is that there is now some hope, not just spiritually, but medically, economically, and to an increasing degree, psychologically. We may even have haircuts on the way to, and my goodness, I need one. (laughs) Our message of hope can build on a growing sense of hope or relief or excitement, whatever you want to call it, more generally around us, that increasingly... People are starting to feel, in this country at least, tentatively, hesitantly, yet emerging and growing nonetheless. That wider news, that wider good news, and our greatest news right now, in this moment, are in sync. What an opportunity that is. I need to finish. So what's my final challenge for us all? Well, first... If you're not yet a Christian or not sure if you are, I'm so glad that you've joined us this morning. But what I want to say to you is of critical 
importance. And it's this. Just like with Jesus calling Mary at the edge of that tomb. Jesus is calling you. Calling your name personally. Inviting you to put your faith in him. And to see your life transformed. So will you respond to him? And make him your saviour, your teacher, your master, your friend. That's what Easter makes possible. It's the greatest outcome to the greatest decision you can ever make. Don't miss it. Don't miss it, whatever you do. And then second, if you already are a Christian, well again, Mary is the model. For Jesus is calling you to, and like her, to turn beyond the fear, the sadness, the bewilderment, and instead to obey his command to go and share the good news. To live your faith again confidently, wholeheartedly, passionately, and play your part in his mission to the world. Will you make this Easter a watershed moment for you? Reflecting the greater confidence and greater opportunity and greater freedom we as a nation can soon have and even are starting already to have. How? By getting out there. Sure, maybe by phone in the first instance or in the garden or in the park or on Skype or on WhatsApp or whatever it is. But then more widely as changes to government regulations permit. Making contact with others intentionally, proactively, prayerfully, strategically with those in need, not just spiritually or socially feeling lonely or or physically in need, but with anyone, anyone who would be blessed in some way by you getting in contact with them, surprising them in that way by reaching out. By showing that you care about them. That they matter. That they matter to you because they matter to God. As the Spirit leads you. Because when the Spirit leads, I can tell you from my life, powerful stuff happens. Time and time again. When we pray and connect, as we vis- our vision puts it, seeking to be God's ambassadors to people now starting to look out and look up again. Rebuilding relationships and friendships for the sake of the kingdom and drawing people out of themselves toward a life renewed physically, emotionally, spiritually and psychologically, even if they don't fully understand yet what that means rediscovering our call as God's beacons of light with a message as real and wonderful as the one Mary shared. To be communicated not just in words, but just as importantly in actions, in service, in listening, and in love. That's our Easter message. That's our Easter purpose. That's our Easter hope. Amen. Well, what I want to do now is...